Welcome to episode 14 of China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. One of the phrases that you hear all the time in China is the people. There's a famous newspaper called The People's Daily. The central bank is called the People's Bank of China. And indeed, the official name of the country is the People's Republic of China. Today, we're going to be asking about the significance of that word people, both in terms of China's domestic politics and its relationship with other countries. Well, I'm delighted to welcome back a distinguished China expert, Clyde Prestovitz, who's advised five US presidents, Reagan, George H.W. Bush, Clinton, Obama and Biden. Clyde, good to see you again. You recently published a great book called The World Turned Upside Down, America, China and the Struggle for Global Leadership. So I'd like to start with a quote from that book, if I may. The Chinese public is among the most policed and guarded against in the world. Indeed, looking from the outside, one could be forgiven for coming to the conclusion that the party sees the public as its most dangerous enemy. Well, that's a very striking claim. What made you write that sentence? Uh, a lot of things, but two particularly. One is that uh, when you calculate uh, China's defense expenditures, um, what's striking is that China spends about as much, maybe a little more, on internal security as it does on its defense, on its external uh, defense budget. Uh, that's a huge, uh, I mean, that compared to what what's spent in, in democratic countries, uh, it, it's just an enormous sum. The second point is that um, you have an army which is called the People's Liberation Army, the PLA, but it doesn't report to the prime minister. It reports to the head of the Communist Party. The PLA is a party army, not a national army. I remember back, I'm old enough to remember the incident in Tiananmen Square, June 24th, 1989, when Deng Xiaoping sent the tanks of the PLA into Tiananmen Square, essentially to shoot the students. Uh, and, and I asked myself, would the US Army uh, or the French or German Army uh, on the order of a party head go into a major square and shoot their own citizens. And I found it hard to uh, swallow that. But the point is that it's the party is not the people's party. It's the party's, party's army. Uh, and, and so its job is to defend the party, not the people. So its job is to defend the Communist Party of China against even the people of China exactly, when, right. they're, when, when they're demanding a different political yeah. system or outcome. And we saw that in Tiananmen Square. Interestingly, though, we didn't see it following the protests in Hong Kong in 2019-2020. The army was said to be prepared to intervene, but it didn't do so. Yes, uh, and I think for two reasons. I think one, the protests in uh, Hong Kong were not 
at the danger point. Number two, I think that the, the leaders in Beijing, Xi, Xi Jinping particularly, understood that if they really sent the army in, that was going to really alienate much of the rest of the world, which they've been trying to woo. And so I, I think they tried very hard to get things under control without using the army, which they've done. So was it because of external international pressure then that uh, a different solution, if I could put it that way, was found for Hong Kong? I think that was a big part of it, yes. Well, as you've just been explaining, and, and you outline this in your book, the internal security system of China is very comprehensive. You use a quote from an official called Li Fengji, who said that the most important role of the Ministry of State Security is to control the Chinese people to maintain the rule of the Communist Party. It sounds rather sinister. It does, but that's, uh, he, he was telling the truth. <laughs> that's, that's what the role is. It seems to me, though, that one of the problems with the idea of the people as a general term is that China actually has very many different groups of people, often with quite distinct regional or cultural identities. Well, it does and it doesn't. Uh, I, I mean, China has, I don't remember how many minority groups, but there are a lot. However, Han Chinese make up about 95% of the population. Uh, and the, the, over the long history of China, the Han have, have proliferated and the others have been marginalized and disappeared. And we're seeing that now in Tibet and in Xinjiang. Uh, in Xinjiang, we have Uyghurs who are Muslim, uh, and um, they effectively are, the, the regime is effectively trying to turn them into Han Chinese. And in Tibet, we've already seen the population there um, become 50% um, or more Han Chinese since the takeover of Tibet in the 1950s. Of all the large countries, China is probably the most homogeneous. Just a, a, a supplementary question on Tibet then. Why is it that China is still so sensitive when the spiritual leader of the Tibetans, who's now in exile, the Dalai Lama, meets politicians or national leaders? The prominence of the Dalai Lama gives hope to uh, indigenous Tibetans that maybe their cause isn't lost. Uh, and Beijing wants to be sure to make them understand that their cause is lost. Beijing goes to extreme lengths. So uh, Mercedes-Benz had an advertisement that was not shown in China. It was shown outside of China. And it had you know, like a three-second clip of the Dalai Lama in their advertising for Mercedes-Benz autos. And uh, Mercedes-Benz was called into the offices in Beijing and told that if they wanted to sell cars in China anymore, they better get rid of the Dalai Lama in their advertisements, no matter where they were, whether they were in Germany or in, in China. And by golly, they did. But part of the narrative in China is that it is a country in which people of different ethnicities and religions live in harmony. I mean, I've seen propaganda posters 
of Chairman Mao meeting the Tibetans and the Uyghurs and so on. Um, and I'm often told by my friends in Beijing that if you go to Xinjiang, you will see that there are more mosques than there are in the United States. So it seems as though the Chinese want to believe that they can uh, coexist with people from these other ethnic groups. Well, this is, this is propaganda. Uh, the, the one serious uh, quasi-religious movement that uh, arose in China in the last 20, 30 years is a Falun Gong. Uh, you may remember uh, that at one point, a large number of Falun Gong believers went to Beijing and actually surrounded uh, Zhang Nanhai, the head, the, the location of the where the Communist Party leaders live, and it was a huge surprise. The party had not picked it up. They had not anticipated it. Uh, today, there's no Falun Gong in China, and they are pursued and persecuted outside of China. Uh, you know that the Chinese have negotiated with the Roman Catholic Church over who should be the bishop uh, in China of Roman Catholics. And for reasons I find hard to understand, uh, the Roman Catholic Church uh, in the Vatican has agreed that the party will, uh, in, will choose uh, the bishop who heads the Chinese Roman Catholic Church. Uh, they have it very nicely under control. I want to turn now to international relations. When China comes in for criticism from abroad, the Chinese state media often claims that outsiders have hurt the feelings of the Chinese people. Well, it's an accusation that I've heard made against both governments and individuals. Could you unpack that phrase for us, please? What does it mean? They love to present the party as one with the people. Uh, and so that statement presumes that every single person, every single soul in China is 100% lined up with the party. Uh, and so if you as an outsider are criticizing the party or criticizing some policy in China, you're not just criticizing the party, you're criticizing every single person in China. Uh, and uh, it's used for propaganda purposes uh, to create pressure on, on outsiders to shut up or to stop uh, uh, applying some policy. Uh, it, but it's, it's a little bit like we discussed earlier in our earlier conversation, the People's Liberation Army. Uh, it sounds like the army is there to liberate the people, but it's there, it's owned by the party. It's there to protect the party. And this phrase, you're hurting the feelings of 1.4 billion Chinese, it's the same thing. Uh, <clears throat> it's a presumption by the party that and they want you to believe that the party speaks for everybody in China. When I was working at the BBC, though, and uh, our reporters were coming under pressure or being censored by an authoritarian country, the response from the newsroom and the editors was, let's put some more scrutiny on what's going on here. And if we need to be critical, let's do so. It didn't actually censor the criticism. If anything, it uh, led to uh, a more robust reaction. I would respond by saying yes and no. I, I understand what you're saying, and I think it does lead to a more robust reaction. But on the other hand, because you're being censored, you're not being allowed to cover as, as broadly and as deeply as you would if you weren't being censored. 
And so you're being preventive from getting uh, deeply into what's happening. So the theme of your book is the struggle between America and China. Going back to the theme of this podcast, the people, is this a struggle between the people of America and the people of China, or is it a struggle between ideas? I think it's a struggle between the people of the free world and the Chinese Communist Party. The Chinese people are people like most people. Um, and they are propagandized and they're observed and they're... It's the Chinese Communist Party that nurtures this faith and that nurtures this drive to impose this faith, not just on China, but now on much of the rest of the world. And increasingly, that uh, begins to undermine and limit the freedoms of the people in the rest of the world. Let's use Australia as an example. So the Australian prime minister who was elected by the people of Australia called for an open investigation of the origins of COVID. And as soon as he did that, suddenly uh, the Chinese stopped buying Australian coal. Lobsters from Australia were left to rot uh, on the docks in Shanghai. Chinese stopped buying Australian wine. Uh, and the Chinese issued a 14-point statement directing the Australians to consider deeply uh, the 14 points in the statement uh, in order to get themselves back into consonance with the Chinese Communist Party. So there's a clear example of the Chinese Communist Party essentially attacking the people, attacking the free speech and, and the open election system of the people of Australia. So you're not an advisor directly to the Australian government, but you have advised US presidents. Joe Biden is interested in your opinions. Could you sum up by saying what you think the best way is for the Biden administration to approach China now? Sure. Um, actually, I think that approaching China is more or less a waste of time. Um, I mean, John Kerry just left uh, where he had discussions on climate change. That's fine if they can have some nice discussion on climate change. But I think the, the bottom line is that uh, we, Biden and the United States, the free world, we're not going to uh, be able to talk China into changing its ways. Uh, and after all, from the Chinese perspective, it looks like China is doing pretty well. Uh, and so in the West, we complain about unfair trade and we complain about the Uyghurs in Hong Kong. China's not gonna stop doing those things because we complain. Uh, and um, I think the first important thing is we, the US, but not just the US, the rest of the free world, in my view, needs to become less dependent upon China. The more dependent a country is on China, the more subject you are to pressure uh, and, and to uh, Chinese discipline. Uh, I had a conversation with the prime minister of another Southeast Asian country who said to me, he said, Clyde, look, he said, you know that we are on America's side intellectually and spiritually, 
He said, well, you know, uh, our biggest export, and we're a small country, our biggest export uh, is education. And all the students who come here are Chinese. And we know that they can be weaponized. We know the government of China can prevent those kids from coming here. Our second biggest export is tourism. And the tourists are all Chinese. And we know that can be weaponized. So the more dependent you are economically on China, the more subject you are to discipline by China. And therefore, I think it's important to decouple. Secondly, I think it's absolutely essential that the U.S. particularly, but not just the U.S., Japan and Western Europe, uh, all collaborate and, and develop to stay in the lead in any significant high technology. 5G telecommunications, artificial intelligence, semiconductors, uh, it's essential for the West to stay in the lead in those important technologies. And that's a matter of domestic investment. It's a matter of uh, Western uh, free market collaboration. It's a matter of improve, in, in, in increased spending on research and development. Uh, and, and that's what we need to do for ourselves. <clears throat> well, thank you, Clyde. I hope you'll come back and join us again in a few months time to give your assessment as to whether Mr. Biden has been following your advice. Uh, that was Clyde Pestovitz, whose new book, The World Turned Upside Down, America, China, and the Struggle for Global Leadership is published by Yale University Press. And if you'd like to hear the other podcasts in this series, they're available via the website of the SOAS China Institute. The website is SOAS, that's S-O-A-S, .ac.uk. Alternatively, you can type SOAS China Institute into a search engine and it should pop up straight away. But until next time, that's it for today from the China in Context podcast team.